Good morning and welcome. It's good to see everybody this morning as you're making your way in. I hope you got a bulletin and you'll be able to follow along in service. Lord, we are so thankful that through the times and the challenges that we faced, you gave us wisdom. You gave us understanding. Father, it's from your word, from a proper perspective. Lord, it was you guiding and directing and still, Lord, taking us farther as we come through and rebuild. Lord, help us to completely trust that you have what we need. You have all that needs to be provided. And Lord, even beyond funds, you, you equip us with the gifts so that we can do the ministries that you've called us to do. Help us to reach down deep in our hearts and find those places we're supposed to serve you. Lord, I thank you for forgiving us, cleansing us, forgiving us of all of our sins as we study the priesthood, that we have a greater, better renewed hope than ever before in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray for those that have been sick, those that have still wrestled with COVID and illnesses, those that are going through treatments. Lord, I, I pray that you'll strengthen them. I pray that you'll give them the courage to go forth and to not give up and to not give in and to trust the process. Lord, I pray for those who've lost their loved ones in the funerals that we've done and in the loss and the grief that they experience. That, Lord, you would bring comfort to them, that you would shine forth as their true and only hope. You're the one that provides the peace and the strength to go forward in these times. Lord, all this we bring before you. Again, not because we deserve it. We've never earned it. Lord, we've simply been blessed because of your covenant promises to us that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. And so we come to praise you for that, praying together as you taught us, saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And we have a surprise for you this morning. At this time, we're going to ask our Sunday school class to come forward as our somewhere in the ages of kindergarten through second grade, third grade area. They have a program in memorizing scriptures and learning catechisms. And so this morning, as they have been coming up on... As they're learning a scripture, they just want to take a moment. It's not a lot, but they just want to share a scripture that they have memorized, and they want to challenge you to memorize one, too. So I told them if they would remember this, I would remember Jesus wept, and we're ready to go. So we, I'm already ready for the next verse. think that was better than Jesus wept? Is that what I didn't, I mean, I didn't tell you we were memorizing chapters as we were going through the Bible. What a blessing. We want to encourage all the classes as they come. I know it's not a lot, but what a blessing for our children to know that we really are excited for the things that they're learning and what they're being a part of and what will last as they come forward. So uh, we have a, a wonderful teaching ahead of you, and we'll slowly get all that out together. But this morning, we want to challenge you uh, to be a part of our classes, help us where you can so that we can continue to teach them. But let me lead us in our confession this morning as I'm up here and working these things through. I told Nick I would be glad to just do this. So uh, join with me as we join together in our confession of our sin together so that we can humbly come to the throne of grace. 
we know the Lord's Prayer, and these are taken many times from other writers and other prayers and scriptures, but it gives us a chance to just corporately come, to put us all on the same level, and to know we all need God's grace to cover our sin. So let's pray together this prayer of confession. Father, we confess our sins because we know you are faithful and just and will forgive us. Humbly we come seeking your forgiveness that we may know the joy of your presence, the light of your face. You alone know our hearts, how often we have offended you, how often we have offended others. Forgive us, Lord, for every unkind thought, every false word, every wrong act. Forgive us, for we have lived not for you, but for ourselves. Lord God, forgive us for failing to give you thanks for our neglect of prayer, our ignorance of your word, our loss of purpose. Father, have mercy upon us. Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. By the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And again, throughout all of the scriptures, what a blessing that we have God's word given to us to find assurance that he gives us grace and pardon, that our sins will not keep us from his presence. And so if you would listen to this assurance from Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. What a blessing to know that the Lord doesn't just listen to us, he responds. He actually accomplishes his will in us. And so we have a great God that we can profess our faith in, that we can share with others, and we've been working through the larger catechism together. And so let's continue this morning as we are confident in what Christ has done for us that we can confidently also confess our faith in what we believe. And so let's confess this morning. I'll read the question if you'll join in the bold print. What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death, until his resurrection. How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, in that, being from all eternity the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. And how did Christ humble himself in his life? Christ humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and infirmities in the flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying that his low condition. As we're learning about this wonderful priesthood, it's so important to see what he truly has accomplished, overcome, and fulfilled for us. Amen. What a, a blessing, again, to be able to lead uh, by our music team and excited to see what they're going to do with choir this fall and leading us in different songs throughout the fall into Christmas. And so uh, children as well. I think there's a plan to even have our children involved in some singing. So parents, pay attention. We'll let you know as those opportunities arise. But this morning, we're picking back up in one of the most confusing chapters to many on the story and the activity of Melchizedek. Last week, we learned very importantly the difference in order, that Melchizedek is a real person. Melchizedek was 
the one that Abraham would go to to see what true righteousness would be and how one would rule forever and that the promise that God made him through his seed would one day fulfill the true priesthood that would last forever. And the preacher here in Hebrews, as you know, debated over the authors of many different ones. One of our books we don't have the authorship actually given to us. But what an amazing opportunity here where he picks back up on the same themes throughout this chapter to take them a little bit deeper to realize not only do we have a perfect priesthood, but we only understand that in light of an imperfect priesthood. Sometimes the best way to communicate something is to tell us what it's not. So the writer begins to tell us it's not what we have in the genealogical priests of Levi. It's not based on the laws of the Levitical understanding of how the priesthood would work. It's ultimately not found in those sacrifices or the sanctuary that we have earthly or even the sanctions that are required upon us. It's only in Melchizedek that we realize the true picture, the true portrait, the true portrayal of a true priest king that one day will come through the seed of Abraham. And now we have Jesus. The sad part, no different than in the time of Judaism, when they saw that baby born, they wanted to still return to the ways of the law, the ways of works. It's no different today than we have the Messiah. We have the eternal high priest who mediates for us, who promises to meet every one of our needs, who promises that nothing in our life happens without his knowledge, preparation, and beforehand preparing. And yet we still want to return to the legalistic systems of counting ourselves righteous by, based on what we do. Do we attend church enough? Do we tithe enough? Do we minister to the poor enough? Am I on enough ministries? Have I committed enough time? Have I been there involved in enough? You see, we try to regulate sometimes our righteousness again back into the things that Christ has already fulfilled. So we'll learn a little bit later on why when you reach your destination do you want to turn around and rejoice in the process of getting there? Maybe we ought to take some time to just rejoice in the destination we wanted to be at. And this morning I pray your destination is Jesus Christ. To not look back and see of all the things that we have to go through or been through or how we got here, but to realize that we have a renewed and better hope, something the world does not understand. So whether you're fighting with the frailties of sin in your own life, the decisions that you've made that have brought upon circumstances, whether you're going through hard times, wrestling with relationships within your family, maybe your marriage, or maybe you've been divorced and maybe you're starting anew, or maybe you've lost the loved one of your life and realize that for the first time, you need to have a renewed hope, a place that you can be blessed forever and ever, that your hope was not in this world, but in the next. And that's where the writer picks up in the middle of the chapter 7. We've broken it up so that we can understand the depth of what he's saying. He picks up, and he doesn't just tell us about this priestly order of Melchizedek, but he now compares Jesus to this directly. He wants the people to know it's not Judaism, it's not the law, it's not the Levitical priesthood, it's Jesus that makes the difference. If I were to ask you this morning, and I won't because I don't want you to raise your hand in public, I don't want you to nudge your neighbor, I don't even want you to wink at me, okay, so I know what's happening. But if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you have been brought near to Jesus? What do you mean, how near? I mean, how close are you talking? Wouldn't it be amazing to spend your whole life working to glorify God and be no nearer to him today than you've ever been? What's the point of that kind of life if you're not being brought near to the Father? It reorients everything about church, our ministries, what we should be doing what we should not be doing, where our focus should be. Should we be programmatic? Should we be based on people? Should we be mission-focused or should we be building-focused? Should we? It changes everything 
when you ask, well, what is it that's going to bring me nearer to God? Ask yourself that question in your own life, because here's what the writer of Hebrews says, being in verse 11. Now, if the perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. You could write the word genealogy there. But by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A renewed hope, a better hope, that comes when we actually find it in Jesus Christ, who in him allows us to be brought near to the Father in heaven. How much closer are you today than three months ago to Jesus Christ? How much closer are you today to the Lord than six months ago? Or back after Christmas when you celebrated his birth? Or have you gotten as close as you'll ever be to Jesus Christ? Have you stopped in the process of being perfected? Here's what it's all about. If the Aaronic priesthood, look at verse 11. If the perfection that would be attained would have been attained, they would have just kept the priests coming from the Levitical priesthood. For those of you who missed last week, that's the line that comes down from Levi. When Aaron was first chosen as one of the Levites to be the high priest, it then follows from then on his eldest living son, when his death comes, becomes the next priest. And they would just choose the next one on down the line. And that's what he's referring to. If perfection could come. Now you need to understand that. Perfection here is the Greek word teleosis. All throughout scripture it is the word that means completeness. When we talk about being perfected we talk about things being completed. Things being accomplished. But in Hebrews we get a twist. Because back into the Septuagint we get this understanding. Which is the Greek text of the Old Testament. We start getting these underlying understandings of what's taking place in the priests and what it means to be perfected. Because all of us would know, what does the Bible mean when we reach completeness, when we reach perfection? Because we know we'll not be sinless. So how is the priesthood ever designed to make us sinless? That wasn't the point. To be perfected throughout the book of Hebrews is this unimpeded process or access to the Father. They went through a whole process of being made holy so that you would go from being clean to unclean if sin had taken place or you had touched something that was defiled or you were through a time in your life in which you were considered unclean and you would have to be brought back to a, point, a process of being made clean. And then there was another step that provided by sacrifice that if things were met right and the right sacrifice was given, you could be now from clean to holy. So in the Old Testament, this understanding of perfection was to be going from the process of being unclean to being clean to being declared what? Holy. To being set apart to be in the presence of God. And as you understand in the Old Testament, especially within the temple and its courtyards, many of the people were never deemed holy enough to ever enter the inner sanctuary to be in the presence of God. And so enters the human priesthood who would represent us 
and allow us to go into the inner sanctuary and to be represented as being perfected by the sacrifices that were made. And then they would only last until another sin was committed. And it was this kind of structure that the writer is taking us to when he said, if this system could have perfected us, there would have been no need for a change. But God knew from the beginning, as clear back when Abraham went out after the spoils of war to meet with Melchizedek, that he would be reminded of Psalm 110, verse 4, the father will not change his mind. You will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. You see, the lineage did not come for that. That's why the process has. What does it mean to be perfected? Perfected to meant to be in this un unimpeded process or this unimpeded access to the Father. It also meant that we had unbroken communion. Now think about this. Every time the priest offered a sacrifice, first for himself and then for the people, they were now brought through. And when the scapegoat came through the courtyards, they could place their hands on the goat. It would be a sign that their sins were taken to the goat. One would be offered up as a sacrifice. The other set out into the wilderness. And that scapegoat would carry off our sins. And the sacrifice would be an altar of incense to the Father. And we would stand holy. Until what? Until you sinned again. And then you're back to being not just clean, but unclean. And we spent our entire systems longing for the point in which these sacrifices would one day work. Later in Hebrews, we'll get it when we learn that it is only in Christ that our conscience can be cleansed. It's only in Christ that the sacrifice becomes a permanent offering. It's only in Christ in which our mediation lasts forever. You see, the Old Testament, as great as it was... As meaningful, as important as it stood against all the other religions that were out there, it still was imperfect and only pointed toward that in which we really needed. Oh, the writer tells us in the New Testament also in Galatians that the law was a what? A tutor. It was a tutor to lead us to who? To Christ. It all pointed to the perfection that we could have, that we could at one point have this unlimited access and this unbroken fellowship with God, this communion, and never have to worry about whether or not God would accept us again or whether he would reject us at the end or whether we were allowed to be there. We could have a boldness is what earlier it says in Hebrews when we read it, when it said, let us boldly come to the throne of grace. You see, it's all because of a different priesthood. Listen to what it says here in the bottom of 11 when it says we further need, that what would there have been for another priest? You need to understand this word. That is the word that we used for other. It's eteros. Actually, if you're in Greek and it has the little sailboat to the left, if you didn't know that, if your sailboat's to the left, it makes an H sound. You've got to put the H in front of it. If it's not, it's a silent sound. So those of you reading your Greek, the actual pronunciation is heteros. It's the word for other you don't understand that because listen to the importance of this text. Could the Aaronic priesthood bring us what we needed? The Jews, Judaism, was saying this is all we need because the priest will come from Levi and one day be a great priest and will no, never need another. And listen to what the writing says here. What further need would there be or have been for heteros priest? For another. It's actually translated best for the other or a other priest. We're talking about something of a different kind. There's different words in Greek to do that. And when we're talking about heteros, we're talking about the other, not just another. We're not talking about just another priest from Aaron. We're talking about the other priest that's going to come of a different kind. I would tell people over the time as they want me to explain it, if you handed a bowl of fruit out for someone to grab something and you took an apple and they said, would you like another? And you said, yes, they would give you an apple. And you would go, no, I meant another, like one of a different kind. I have an apple. I would like an orange. Can I have one of the bananas? You see, the communication is hard because you weren't saying, can I have another of the same kind? You were saying, can I have another? It would have been better to say, could I have the other kind? 
It would make all the difference in the world. And that's what's happening here with heteros. What the writer is telling us is we can't have another priest that just keeps doing the same thing. It's not going to help us to have another Levitical priest, another descendant of Aaron, another one that is sinful, another one whose sacrifices don't last, another one who can't bring us to the perfection that we need. We need the other, another priest, one that rises up and makes a difference to give us a better hope. And that is the one, he says, comes after the order of Melchizedek. Because the laws that it state here were never able to make things perfect. Now we need to do that in a priest who makes a difference. When we talk about the law, we're not talking about the moral law. That is not what is announced here. We're talking about the Levitical laws that established the right of the Levites to be the priests. The genealogical laws that go along with that. As you see as the text unfolds, we realize that the genealogy laws change as the priesthood changes. Once the priest from Melchizedek comes, we no longer care about the genealogy of Aaron. It no longer matters to us who the next descendant of Aaron would be because that was never going to be the priest who would bring us into the presence of God and give us an ongoing, unbroken communion with the Father. Let me ask you this morning, who's taken you into the presence of the Father? You cannot go by yourself. You cannot stay there by yourself. And there's no priest of Aaron that's ever been able to cleanse your conscience and to prepare you to be perfected, holy, to be in the presence. Maybe this morning you realize, Pastor, I need the other help. I don't need the help of my job, the help of my church, the help of my ministries. I say this gently, I don't even need the help of my spouse because none of them will take me to the inner sanctuary of the Heavenly Father. I want the other one, the Jesus, the one who can take me and represent me and permanently keep me in communion with the Father. So the question becomes just who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the ways of Judaism, which is what the writer would say, and wanting to go back to all the ways? Are you trusting in that which has come, the answer to the promise that we now have what was promised us? Verse 13 and 14 take us through this genealogical understanding where all the one is qualified by just being a descendant and how Jesus is now disqualified. Listen to the words, folks. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, what's the issue? Judaism will tell you up front the problem is, in verse 14, that the Lord did not come from Levi. So the writer is putting it all together for you. Levi was never intended to be the one that would bring us to the place where we could have this unbroken communion. It was to help us get to that place, to long and to hope for the one that would make us right forever. And that's where we get in verse 15 through 17. It begins to challenge us to an indestructible life. Listen to this. Who has become a priest in this order of Melchizedek, verse 16, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. The power that we have in Jesus as our priest is because he is the indestructible life. He is the one who's risen from the dead. He's rose from the grave. Death could not keep him Every other priest was a limited function because they had to die. Why hang on to death? Do you find joy in grasping a corpse? What is it that the dead has to offer you? Oh, I could say it in a mean sense because I'm not saying you don't love your loved ones. And I'm not saying to forget about them. I've said it every funeral. For those, when you lose someone you love and says, don't worry about it, give it time, it'll go away. They don't understand true love. Man, to say that to somebody. But what good is it to hang on to them? We know what it's like if you've never been around your parents or grandparents when someone has died for many years and the paint can't be changed, the furniture can't be touched, the rooms can't be used. 
Everything has to remain the same. The same car in the garage that's never been used, but that was their favorite. What is it like to live with someone who's hanging on to someone who's dead? Life doesn't come from the corpse. And every priest of Aaron has died. And yet when you look at Jesus Christ, you have the one of an indestructible life. Your hope is not in the dead. Your hope in Christ is not in someone who is in the grave. Your hope is not in someone who doesn't understand. It is someone who is a compassionate, wholehearted priest because they've been through every weakness that we would face. They've been through every trial, every circumstance. He's able to be the compassionate priest that understands, and yet he's one that can overcome death and has, and so he lives forever. You'll never face an issue in your life that Jesus cannot mediate. You'll never go through a sin in your life in which Jesus cannot cover. I've never known Jesus to forget anyone. I've read the scripture that says he forgets our sins. You ever wondered about that? How an omnipotent God could really forget. But yet he never says he forgets us. Once in his presence, Jesus never forgets you. He knows your hurt, every hurt you've been through. He's got your file. He's the, quote, Christian counselor, if you wish, that when you show up, he's the one that remembers when you were 12 and said the things you shouldn't, and 14 and snuck out when you shouldn't have, and 16 when you took the car the first time, and 18 when you went out when you shouldn't have, and 21 when you did the things you shouldn't at the party, and 24 when you lied to the boss about the work and the promotions, and 29 when you cheated and you weren't faithful to the promises you made, and 32 when you tried to run and hide and live in. Folks, he's got it all because he's the same priest. And he's known you not just since you started sinning. He's known you even before the foundations of the what? The world. And yet he loves you. He loves you. And he's able to perfect you. Which means he's able to give you unbroken communion. And unhindered access with the Father. You now can come directly to God in Jesus Christ. What other avenue would you want to take? You see, as it begins to challenge us about this, it may not make sense to any of you, but when you think about this indestructible life and this fleshly thing that's matted out, it's because Jesus did meet all the requirements, even when the other priests didn't, even they were sinners themselves. Jesus wasn't. He met all the earthly requirements. He met all the fleshly requirements except for the genealogy. And that's why he was denied. But when they understood he was the king priest from Judah, they set aside these commandments. This is what's important in verse 16. The commandment that was set aside, Lord, back in verse 18, for on the one hand, the former commandment that is set aside. Draw a circle around that former commandment and draw a line up to the legal requirement in verse 16 because that's what it's talking about. You may not see this in the English text, but that's the exact same word. The word for requirements and the word for commandments there are the exact same word of entoles. What they are is the requirements. We're not talking about the whole Mosaic and moral law. We're talking about the requirements of this genealogical fit have been annulled. That's the word set aside. Circle that in that same verse of 18. The former commandment, the one that had the requirements concerning bodily descent, has been annulled. Does anybody know what annulment is? Anybody ever been through an annulment? I remember the first time I learned about annulments in two ways. One of them was because my friend was in the Catholic Church, and his parents were getting divorced, and they wanted to have the marriage annulled. And so I began to learn from Mark, what in the world do you mean by annulled? You mean your parents are getting divorced, right? I said, well, yeah, it's more than that. I said, well, how much more is it than that? And he said, the annulment actually takes a further step and says, not only are you no longer married, 
but it's considered as though you were never married because you never came together to be the one that you were supposed to be. And so through proper testimony and working, the Catholic Church and the priests, all the way up to the Vatican and the signing off, had the right to say that marriage that said you were united now doesn't exist because it never really worked. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to make you one, unbroken communion, unhindered access to each other. And yet now it's annulled. The second time I learned about it was when we had a step-half-brother show up at our door. It was dropped off by a lawyer, and we had learned, my mom, for the first time, that my father had been married before and had a child. The reason we didn't know about it is because his marriage had been what? Annulled. He had found himself with a girl that he loved, and she got pregnant, and so they got married for the sake of the child, and within four or five months, he'd rather play for the Denver Bears at the time, and he didn't want to stay married, and so since they weren't married long enough, I didn't realize this, but back in that day, if it was before six months and you could prove it wasn't working, it could just be annulled. No record that it happened. Do you hear what the writer is saying? The priesthood of Aaron and the geological or genealogical list of what's necessary for the priest to be real has been annulled. That's the word that is used for set aside. That is the word that is used, octetasis. In other words, it was never meant to be one. It never accomplished what it was supposed to. The sacrifices offered by an earthly, sinful priest could never perfect you. And if you think you've been made right with God because of these actions that have been accomplished, you're missing out on a full communion and a real communion with the Father. Because it was never intended to make you right. Only Jesus could do that. And so verse 19 tells us we now have a better hope. For the law made nothing perfect. It did not last. It did not solidify. It could not perfect us. It could not complete us. All of this it failed to do. And now we have a better hope that can bring us near to God. To have the same fellowship we're talking about. And to have a priest forever, confidence when we draw near, that he loves us, that he's accepted us, that he's covered our sins. You see, now he's the sacrifice once for all time. We learn this as we go through Hebrews. Chapter 7 is setting the stage for all that's to follow with the new covenant in chapter 8 and the priesthood in 9 to show just how Jesus has done that. You must trust that Jesus, the king priest from the tribe of Judah, was the promise that was made to Abraham, not the ones that would come through the law. For Galatians chapter 4 reminds us this, for when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might now receive the adoption of sons. And because we are now sons, God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are now no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you are an heir through God. We have been redeemed from the imperfections of the law. And you now have Jesus Christ. Why would you want to go back? When everything points to Jesus, and now we have Jesus, why would you desire anything else? Unbroken communion with the Father, unhindered access 
to the inner sanctuary of the true temple. Oh, it changes our whole perspective when we talk about and listen to people talk about the future when maybe one day the temple will be set back up and we'll be able to restore the sacrifices and it'll be a heavenly place and we can offer these things permanently. Do you not see the flaw in that? Do you not see the flaw as to why we would ever want another temple and more sacrifices? Because it's the sacrifices within that temple that were never, ever able to perfect us. It was Jesus that perfects us. It's Jesus that takes us to the presence of the Father. It's Jesus that now gives us this access. So the writer is telling us before he summarizes everything in conclusion that it is this old way that must be done away with, one that could never give us life, never give us life abundantly. And now we have to ask ourselves, now that we've reached Christ, please don't turn back. I know there's struggles. We face the same ones. Sometimes we face the same family problems, the same children issues, the same parental problems. We're in the same workforce. We're in the same demands. We're going through the same trials and jumping over the same hurdles. But you have a priest in the presence of the Father that has said, Come to me, all ye who are weak and heavy burdened. I will give you what? Rest. Why run to the sacrifices of an earthly descent when you have everything already given. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that here at the end of our lives, as you've counted our days, you've numbered them. Lord, we ask ourselves, are we any closer to you now than before? Are we any nearer to you, Father? Father, help us to realize that we're as far as we've ever been if we're not in your Son, Jesus Christ. Our access, this unpeated access, this wonderful, unhindered communion is only in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in Him. It's all that He's done for us that allows us to be made perfect, to be ready for your presence and to experience that peace. Thank you for your son. He's the priest we needed, the perfect priest who brings us nearer to you. Bless us as we share now, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. As we come to a time of communion, I'm going to invite the officers that will help us to come forward. And I would like to take a moment as we begin to pass it out to remind you that we're not taking the communion to be saved. We're taking communion because we are saved. We've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We belong to the church. We observe its ordinances, its covenants. We submit to its discipline. We're in an active obedience and lifestyle. If you're here this morning and you find yourself separated from the church, from Christ, I would ask that you would pray. I would ask that you would pray that the Lord would forgive you, that he would cleanse you of your sins, and that he would reintroduce you to the great high priest that can give you a new hope, that you yourself can have the peace that's been promised, but only in Jesus Christ. And so, as we get ready to pass it out, I'll read in just a moment, but we'll begin by passing out the bread I will ask that as we pass it out, you to take one and hold it. Again, if need be, that you need the little rice. It's in a separate packet by itself. Please just take the whole packet. You don't have to take it out of the packet at the time, and we'll have that. But if you would, please distribute that. And while they do, I would like to read... Not only from Scripture but from our confession, a section of the Lord's Supper. Many people ask of the Lord's Supper. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called it the Lord's Supper, 
to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for a continual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing of all the benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and their growth in him, their further engagement in all, to all the duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. He said, in this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice is made at all for the remission of sins of the quick or the dead, but only a commemoration of the one offering up himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that a popish sacrifice of the mass, as some would have called it years ago, is most abominable injurious to Christ's one and only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. What he's saying in the one sense is everything that has ever happened in the past through the popish, the Catholic, the Old Testament, the Judaism, the early church is abominable if it does not point to the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That does not mean there was not good in those. It just means within those, if it did not point us to Christ, then it was abominable. The church today, I say this heartfelt sincerity, finds itself in abomination many times. When we find ourselves leading people to the places we want them, rather to the, than into the presence of Jesus Christ. We must point people to who? To Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice that he has made for us, that it was his body on the cross, his earthly body, that we have now seen has been raised from the dead, committed unto you, and now serves us as high priest in your presence. Father, it's through him that we come to partake, and in his name that we pray. Amen. It was Jesus at the Lord's table that he met with the disciples, that he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way that he did the bread... He took the drink, and so I'll ask that as we pass the drink that you please take one and hold it until we can all drink together. Thank you. In the same way, please let me continue the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus has in the ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray, to bless the elements of the bread and the drink, and to thereby to set them apart for the common and holy use. And to take the, break, the bread and to take the cup, to give both to the communicants, but not to those that are not present there within the congregation. The outward elements in this sacrament duly set apart the uses ordained by Christ, having such relation to him crucified as that truly yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent, to wit, the body and the blood of Christ. Though in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and drink, as they were before. Worthy receivers outwardly partake of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and the wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers that take it. Jesus said it this way, or Paul wrote this way when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's an amazing thing that when we take the Lord's Supper, we take it not because we have no sin. We take it because we're acknowledging the one who has overcome our sin, who has conquered our sin, and has cleansed us from our sin. So wherever you are this morning, I challenge you to ask Jesus Christ to cleanse you from your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your son Jesus, his blood, the blood that was shed, not the blood that came from a sacrificial lamb, from bulls, rams, and goats, but the blood from your very own son, chosen from the order of Melchizedek, and who forever stands in your presence to plead my case. Lord, it's in him that I confess my faith, my true trust, and my allegiance. It's in his name I pray. Amen. As he took that bread and broke it and gave thanks, he also said, this is my blood, the new covenant poured out for you. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink. And at this time, we'll take up an offering and ask them if they would to take that up. Let me remind you while they're taking that real quickly that we used to take up a deacon's offering every time we did the Lord's Supper, but it was only once a month. But now since we do it regularly, you are allowed to give to the deacon ministry at any week that you give. We still compile that together, and the deacons are very thankful for all that you have given to them for their ministries. give you the benediction that reminds you in your bulletin. Pastor Nick will have his installation service on the 23rd. We put that in there for you, but please plan ahead. That'll be a night where we come together and we'll have many different ministers here from our presbytery. They'll be taking part in installing Nick as our associate pastor. And so we want you to come afterward. We'll have some finger foods and some fellowship, but uh, plan that ahead of time so that you can come if you're able to be a part. If you receive the benediction, May the Lord bless you, keep you, and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his countenance toward you and give you peace. And all God's children said, have a, have a great Lord's day.